Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. She just published a book in May 10, on May 10th, 2022. Title of the book is Forged in Darkness, The Many Paths of Personal Transformation. And her name is Joanna LaProd. And she's the doctor. She's the founder of Aeon Psychotherapy. Her therapeutic work focuses on helping clients find a meaningful connection to their inner worlds. She has published articles in the field of Jungian and archetypal psychology and taught at the Colorado College on the Jungian and archetypal perspective. She lives in Durango, Colorado with her partner, Max, and her dog, Akela, and her, uh, which I will put in the show notes. Her website is aeonpsychotherapy.com. So you can learn more about the book there and her, but it's very interesting books. I lear learned a lot about certain psychological per perspectives that I didn't really know before. So I'm glad and delighted to have her. So Joanna LaProd, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the book. Really interesting. Can you kind of talk about your background, why you chose this particular field in psychology, and then what led you to write Forged in Darkness? Hmm, a big question. Um, my background is in Jungian and archetypal psychology. I got my doctorate at Pacifica Graduate Institute, and the first iteration of this book is my doctoral dissertation, which I've taken... Um, great labors to transform it from that type of kind of sterile academic writing into something that I hope can really affect people. Um, <clears throat> how I got into this field, you know, it's an interesting kind of chicken and the egg question, as I'm sure many people talk about in, when they kind of find their passion, or as Joseph Campbell says, their bliss. Um, I always knew that I was interested in studying the mind um, and found Jung kind of through a synchronicity where I was kind of lost at a certain phase in my life and went to a bookstore and basically just found this book on Jung that was like kind of a jar in the bookshelf, pulled it out, drained the book in a day and made this huge leap of faith in my life to attend Pacifica, which is in the US, I think kind of the highest level of kind of Jungian and archetypal thinking um, as far as an institution. And um, it was just like finding, I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you find something that expresses everything you've ever thought in a language that you didn't know existed. And I think finding Jung and finding depth psychology was that for me. And um, so in a lot of ways, it was a really easy fit and a really easy find. And um, this you're book- fortunate. Um, You're very fortunate. Go ahead. You're very, very, very fortunate to find that, you know, yeah. find that something that you grasp right away. Yeah. Yeah, to see it and to know yourself enough to kind of see, I think in some ways, depth psychology, looking back on it, it was this intersection of everything I'd ever thought and been passionate about that kind of when you get that aerial view that time gives you, it's like, oh, well, there could have never been anything else. Um, but yes, I do feel really lucky and blessed to have just found something that I care about so much. And I think this book comes from that place in me that just is so passionate about these ideas and this material. And I think, you know, the book became, it, it came from a really personal place. And then it went through this transformation as a doctoral dissertation, which is really academic and research-based and kind of sterilizing in some ways. And then when I finished my doctoral work and started a private practice and started working with clients, I saw this book live itself out so much that it felt it felt mandatory on some level for me to kind of transform it and put it into the world in a way that it could help people like the people that I work with and not just kind of rot in that 
academic place where only three people have ever read it, you know? Right, right. And you include a lot of personal stories I do. and vignettes and things like uh, some of your clients, people you've talked to, their mm -hmm. troubles, difficulties, fears, mm -hmm. worries. And maybe just as a, as a starter, who was young and can you define depth psychology? I mean, maybe that's simple, but some people may not know those terms or that. Yeah, of course, of course. So um, Jungian psychology, well, let's start with depth psychology. Um, psychology in general is a big tent. There's a lot of different psychologies in that tent. And depth psychology in, I think you could use the word depth or analytical in kind of interchangeably to describe a field of study that takes the unconscious seriously and focuses on the unconscious. And so a kind of simple way to describe that would be, you know, a lot of psychologies are concerned with what's, what's on top of a table, kind of moving things around, moving your place setting, you know, getting things cuter and nicer and the way you might want it to look. A study of the unconscious is the study of that part of ourselves that we can't actually get access to that isn't accessible and known to the ego on some level. So it's reaching underneath the table and kind of trying to find the lost parts of ourselves that maybe we've repressed, maybe we've never had access to. There's a personal element to that. There's a collective element to that. And so the analytical approach or the depth approach is really about focusing and being informed in your life by that unconscious part of yourself. And the, the first kind of major Western thinker that birthed that idea was Freud, who really galvanized the idea of the unconscious. And Jung, Carl Jung was, um, he came after Freud. They, they had a time in their careers where they overlapped and they were very close and then kind of had this like juicy breakup. And, um, but Carl Jung is very unique in the field of psychology for his contribution in relationship to kind of the structure of the unconscious. And, um, maybe kind of a good way to describe it is on tiers. So if we think of our conscious sense of self, our sense of I as the ego of conscious awareness, what we know about ourselves, the analytical or depth approach has is concerned, like I said, with what's underneath that surface. And the, the Freudian and the original approach to the unconscious posited that there was a personal unconscious. So that the the that part of ourselves that informs our life that we don't have access to is kind of a depository of personal memories, traumas you don't want to look at, parts of yourself that don't fit into society, all of these kind of things that have a tonality of um, personality in relationship to your conscious sense of self. And Jung is unique in his contribution to believing that there's an archetypal or a collective layer underneath that. And this is kind of where Ford and Jung diverge. And Jung felt very strongly that there was also a collective psyche. So that there is a psyche within all of us that repeats itself generationally over and over again, that creates this kind of shared substratum of human experience that he called the collective unconscious. And that's the, the part of our being that archetypes come from. Um, an arch archetype is Jung's word for... Um, it's not originally his word, but his expression um, comes from the Greek archi, which means first. Um, it's the idea of kind of a pre-structuring element in the psyche that repeats itself throughout time, geography, place, over and over and over again, and kind of acts as the blueprints that kind of organize the psyche. Um, the way that I like to, 
to kind of imagine archetypal experiences or archetypes is kind of as a vessel. So everybody has this vessel, the form of an idea, of a belief, of a concept. And depending on who you are, what culture you're from, the attitudes you grew up in, the era that you grew up in, the liquid that fills that vessel is gonna be unique and the expression of that archetype is gonna be unique, but the form is the same. So major archetypes, mother, father, child, war, love, you know, th these ideas that you could kind of see express themselves over and over and over again throughout human history, and um, this is where like our myths come from. This book is enormously archetypal because it's so mythic and I'm trying to draw on the archetypal presence because it's what connects us all. And, and, and the Jungian approach really emphasizes connection to that part of your being and that kind of the symbolism and the energy and the kind of story that comes from this this part of us that I think very arguably is very easy to see as there must be truth in it. You know, we, we tell the same stories, we repeat the same actions, we live with the same ideas and they take on different colors, but that basis really does remain very similar. And so, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, yeah. So, I mean, so that was a differentiation from Freud with these ideas you just spoke about. And he mm -hmm. had a follower too, who you mentioned, whose name I was not familiar with, Hillman, too, who kind of added on to Jung, correct? Yeah, so Hillman is the founder of archetypal psychology. And, um, you know, and I think in, in the kind of the psychological world, I think a lot of people think Hillman and Jung are pretty at odds with each other. Um, Hillman, James Hillman, um, a more contemporary um, figure than Carl Jung. And... Um, he was original Jungian. He taught at the Jung Institute in Zurich um, and eventually ended up directing the Institute. So a very, a very classical Jungian in some forms that made this divergence from Jung where he, you know, Hillman is, Hillman is a really provocative psychological figure. He likes to break stuff open and that's very much his process. But he took, I think, in some ways, the basis of Jungian work and Jung's ideas on how to relate to your psyche on a deep level. And he asked us to kind of not, this sounds hard to kind of maybe understand, but not interpret them, not literalize them. He really wanted us to focus on the imaginative aspect of psyche, that psyche is a process. Our psychological experience is a process of imagining. And it's about how we relate to those things. And he wanted to leave behind kind of the traditional analytical lexicon for ego and shadow and compensation and all of these terms that he felt really caged us and instead really just step into the kind of activity that psyche is having. What are your symptoms saying to you? What, what's the story in the symptom? What's the message in the symptom? How do you let the symptom have its own life? If your anxiety is expressing something to you, how do you let it be in yourself? It's a really different approach to that kind of understanding something that we really, I think, in the Western mind are, are keen on and are trained to expect in something, make meaning, find meaning. And Hillman is much more, um, he just wants to get at the archetypal presence in something. He just wants to see its essence, its core, and let it live out. Um, so it's a very creative form of kind of engaging with yourself. Um, 
and can be challenging in certain ways because of that lack of meaning and interpretation. But I think ultimately it's trying to open up our ideas that we have about our ideas. Right. But that's kind of a theme in your book is the kind mm -hmm. of modern man's view of things. Everything's assigned. Mm -hmm. There's the old Dionysian Apollonian mm -hmm. uh, duality. And you think that the Apollonian uh, view kind of pervades our, our outlook maybe too much. Maybe I think at the end you make the argument that Dionysian, it's okay to go in and come back out, but maybe that that's too far at the end because you talk in the intro about going into the underworld and the underworld themes in ancient Greece and the world really. Can you kind of talk about yeah. the kind of theme of the book that involves the underworld? Yeah. I mean, the, the arc of the book is about the underworld journey. It's about our human experiences of entering into the deep and dark places in life, whether that's our suffering, our trauma, our grief, our loss, or the kind of interiorization of who we are going within in the inner world and, and exploring and being with that part of your personhood. And, you know, the underworld is one of the very first concepts and places and ideas that the human imagination ever went into. The front, some of the first things that we have archaeological evidence of doing are ritualizing our deaths and, you know, giving reverence to that kind of harbinger of the unknown, of the dark, of that which we can't control, that which we can't understand. And it's actually, if you kind of think about the trajectory of human history, not having an active relationship with the deep and dark in ourselves is a really new idea. And we have moved away from having this active reverence or active relationship with accepting the dark places in life. And, you know, our culture is dominated by the story of being strong, being together, being in control, fixing things, you know, having life look positive and be happy. I mean, we ask ourselves, are you happy? We don't ask ourselves, is what happening to you meaningful? Are you being transformed? Are you being affected? And so, you know, we've lost this, this kind of deepening quality. We are a really shallow culture. We're very externalized. We, we don't value the deep and dark places. They're not things that we can control. They're not things that we can make pretty or they're not things we can make money off of. And because of that, we're really losing the power that comes from being in deep and dark places. You know, I think as a therapist, I see this all the time. It's, I mean, you, I'm sure, I mean, maybe a listener or you can challenge me on this and I would be fascinated, but you know, I have yet to meet in myself, my personal life, my professional life, anyone who has gone through, through a profound change of character, of capacity building, of becoming more than they thought they were in the comforts of the day world. It doesn't happen there. It just, it never has. And we have to get pushed into these places. And so this book is really a celebration of an old idea that no one wants to go into the underworld. No one wants to find ourselves in those places, but that's not a choice that we get. Life is going to give it to us in large ways and small ways, and that's a part of it. And so how do you build a relationship with these places? And because you have to, to make meaning out of them, to be affected by them. And so the kind of the arc and the effort of this book is, is explaining why we've lost this relationship with darkness, 
what we're losing in ourselves by so desperately refusing to make the underworld journey and, you know, how we're asked to underworld now. This is a big kind of effort in the book is this kind of heroic energy that we face hardship, kind of like Rambo. It's like, or, you know, the Terminator or some, some like masculine, powerful conquering energy. And there is something really beautiful in that and powerful in that. And it's only one way to navigate hardship. And the, the, the meat in this book is really about showing other mythic journeys that also show us different ways we could imagine into hardship that give us different attitudes, characters, suites of behavior that we can start noticing, oh, this archetype is present within me. I'm doing, I'm, I'm facing darkness in this way. And hopefully in that fill out our own, our own choices, really our own capacity to be with these deep and dark places that, and thus be affected by them and thus grow from them. Right. I mean, that's your the theme, the many paths of transformation forged in darkness. So you have this idea you're going to go descend, but also ascend. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're going through these places, uh, personal trauma, suffering, anxiety, family. There's so many issues people can have. But yeah. you look at it through the going through this darkness as partially a heroic, if not all, a heroic journey though, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, the hero, there, there's there's a lot of emphasis on hero in this book. And, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways there hasn't really been a mythic figure that has captured our imagination like the hero has. And, you know, the hero represents archetypally the kind of, the capacity within all of us to understand that the old life is somehow worn out, that it's worn thin, that it's no longer of, there's no longer life energy and alignment in it. And take the, the arduous and the challenging steps to kind of leave behind that old, cross the threshold into what we don't understand, what we don't, aren't familiar with, be in the kind of fire of that experience and somehow come back transformed and renewed. And, you know, in, in our popular culture and understanding, you know, no one contributed more to our understanding of the hero than Joseph Campbell, who was, you know, our, the great mythologist who outlined the steps in the hero's journey. And he, and his you know, book was he, hero of a thousand faces, right? Exactly. Hero 19, of a thousand faces. 1949. Yeah. And, you know, and his, which is, I mean, you know, in, in my humble opinion, like the greatest title of all time. I love that title so much. It's so good. But it also captures something really true, right? That the hero does have a thousand faces. There are so many ways to express that galvanizing energy of transformation that really makes up the human capacity to kind of be more than we thought we could, to face what is so challenging in life and step up. Um, in, in expand, grow, whatever it is. And one of the things that I talk about in this book is that we've really reduced the, the multiplicity of the hero to hero. And in, in Greek, in the Greek world, the, the hero that we have become enchanted by is Hercules, who is, you know, the, he's the, the great monster slayer who uses willpower and force and courage alone to kind of submit things into 
his domain to, to always be victorious, to always conquer, to, you know, Hercules spends his entire life fighting the same monsters over and over again. Nothing ever happens to him because he faces everything with life sword in hand. And that's an enormously powerful energy. And I think in darkness and in the underworld, sometimes we need that energy but we've become really enchanted by it. And we focus on that kind of quest of human expression and transformation through that lens and ask ourselves to conquer, to be victorious, to have that willpower, to get through it, be a hero. And one of the things that I talk about in a lot in this book is different heroes that make underworld journeys that don't move in that way at all, that don't have that kind of idea of hero in them that we think of and to kind of show people that this form this archetypal energy of leaving the old behind stepping into the uncomfortable threshold of really letting something go in yourself being affected by something and then coming back somehow transformed by that as a larger personhood that doesn't have to look like hercules that can look like orpheus or odysseus or aeneas and we can find that same energy, but approach our own lives in a different way. And I really want this book to be a celebration of those other ways. And maybe you can just expand on that. What are those other ways? What a kind of different style instead of this kind of commanding, overcoming Hercules type archetype? Um, so, the, so you know, I'll, maybe I'll give you like my favorite. So there's some treats for people who are going to be hungry for the book, but um you know, so what I do in the book is I have, there's five heroes that I unpack in a lot of psychological detail and mythic detail, um, Hercules being one of them. And then I also look at um, three deities, all of which make underworld journeys. That's the kind of like qualifying aspect, um, Hermes, Dionysus, and Persephone. Um, so my favorite hero is Aeneas, who is the, he is the highest ranking Trojan to survive the fall of Troy. And so his task is to kind of find a new home for his people. Um, Aeneas is kind of in the mythic land, kind of considered to be the founder of Rome as the father of Romulus and Remus. Um, right, so the Iliad, right? Wasn't he in the... He's in the Iliad in the Iliad. sense that he's a Trojan, that he like, you know, so because the Iliad is about the fall of Troy and oh, he's... It's the Iliad, what's the book after that one? Um, Homer, Homer is well known for the Iliad and the Odyssey, and the Odyssey, Odyssey is about Odysseus. Okay, sorry, I thought. But he... you're right. But but Aeneas is in the Iliad. He's um, he's not a major player, but he is. Um, like I said, he's kind of the 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 last living, um, like royal family member who then um, kind of embarks upon this quest to find his his people, um, which is the Aeneid. Is Virgil's Aeneid is written about mm -hmm. um, Aeneas. Okay. And so Aeneas, at some point, you know, Aeneas is kind of stuck. Here's the heroic question, right? Like, what do I do? Not sure how to go about it. And he is advised by his mother, Aphrodite, to go into the underworld and speak to his father, or his father, Anchistus, who will tell him of his future and all the things to do. And so here's Aeneas at that moment, right, where he has to descend into the underworld. And he does this wonderful thing. Like he prays to his mother. He asks for guidance. His mother tells him that he needs to get guidance from this Apollonian seer named Sybil. Um, 
And he goes to the Sybil and he begs her to help him. And she agrees to, and they go into the underworld and there Aeneas only asks questions. He barely ever speaks at all. He listens mostly because the Sybil's kind of a little bit of a chatterbox, but he watches and he listens. And when he does speak, he asks questions and he learns more about the underworld than any other mythic figure. He figures he learns about the order of things, what happens to this person, why this person is that way. All of this incredible knowledge of his experience because he has this incredible reverence for following following something larger than yourself within and and bowing to that energy and listening to that energy and being and he cries and he falls down and he sees companions that are dead and lovers that are dead and he has this just enormous exposure to this, to, to the underworld, but he never fights it. He never resists it. He never tries to tamper or subdue it. He just goes with the flow and he reaches his father and he, a lot of mythic figures, when they go into the underworld, they, they find someone that they love as it's an easy feeling to connect to in ourselves and try to pull them back up with them. <laughs> and he just, he lets his father be, he knows his place he asks his father, you know, what is what is needed of me? What is asked of me for me to help my people? What do I need to do? What do I need to give up? His father gives him, you know, a portrait of his fate, of the fate of his people, tells him exactly what to do. And Aeneas never reaches for his dad. He never attempts anything more than just listening and reverence. And he comes back up from the underworld with all the information that he needs to found, you know, this incredible civilization and this incredible salvation for his people. And he does it in this quiet, gentle, reflective way that knows that something larger is happening to him. And he just listens and is present for it. And I can't help thinking, I mean, there's more that he does. It's kind of a general arc, but I can't help thinking like how how much would all of our experiences of real suffering be different if we had some Aeneas in us, if we had that listening reverence? What 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 is trying to communicate itself to me? What is being asked of me right now? You know, I just lost somebody I really care about. What do I have to confront in myself now? Because I don't get to undo that. You know, I just have to be here and learn something from something that's bigger and scarier than I am. And it's a really different energy than you know, the way I think a lot of us are taught to, to avoid. these hard yeah. parts. Yeah. No, people are learn to avoid pain and suffering, mm -hmm. try to put it in a box mm -hmm. and keep it away. And I think mm -hmm. that that's, uh, it's, it's hard for people to stand quiet like me is and, uh, try to it's get that learning. It's enormously hard, but I think one of the things that I would like people to ponder is like, what if that's heroic? What if the most like empowered thing that you can do for yourself towards your own transformation is to bend a knee to what's happening to you and listen to it? You know, we don't think of heroism as being anything that's not powerful and flashy and big and victorious. Like, what if it's quiet like that? What if it's about listening? What if it's about recognizing when something's larger than you? You know, what if we had conversations with ourselves where we saw people in our life and we said, wow, that takes an enormous amount of strength? Because in my opinion, it takes a lot more strength, a lot more courage, you know, coming from the Latin core, which means heart, to be with that stuff than it does to just fight it and try to put it in a box. 
right? I mean, our culture has lost a lot of its archetypal. You, know, you can only find it in a in a therapist's office or a psychotherapist's office. But outside of that, you see you lost with the classical kind of learning that the, that's why people read Homer. That's why they read absolutely you know, the Iliad and all that stuff. And it's it's been denuded from, I think, the modern curriculum and even in, in the university, it's not as common. Not as common. No, I, I think so. I know, you know, something that I've always been really curious about <clears throat> is, you know, yes to that 100%. And it's, it's like, because I'm such a student of myth and I'm always sharing myths in my practice or, you know, trying to pull archetypes out for people. It's like, when you touch that realm with someone, it's like water on parched earth. People are mesmerized when you say, you know, oh, you know, this reminds me of, and you tell them like a, a mythic story or a fairy tale. And people are like, you know, because it touches something in us. You know, I, when I was teaching at, um, when I was teaching at Colorado college once I had this student come up to me two or three days into the class. And, um, they were like, you know, I just have to say, I think you're the most empathetic person I've ever met in my life, which is not true. I mean, it's just like a cold fact about who I am, not the most empathetic person you've ever met. But it was a really, really interesting comment because I didn't know anything about this girl. There, there was no capacity for empathy. I didn't know where she lived. I didn't know anything about her life. You know, it was like a couple days into being her professor, never met her before. And so what I told her was, you know, I was like, you know, I, I don't know if I can be empathy, empathetic to you. I don't know enough about you. But what I hear you saying is these ideas make you feel so seen in some way. It's, it's, it's awakening some part of yourself that maybe you haven't seen yet. And that feels really powerful and feels really good to kind of turn in, inward in that way. And they were like, oh, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of your stories are about people feeling not very valuable, feeling empty, feeling lost, a lot of those uh, things. And so these archetypes can help you feel like you're on a journey with other heroes and other human yeah. beings, the same that's, journey. that. The, uh, yeah, that's the magic, right? And that's what we've been doing for eons is we've been connecting to this archetypal, this collective basis in us to make meaning and tell ourselves what it means to be human and what our world is all about. And that kind of dilution and the anemia of not being kind of mythically attuned, it makes it up to the individual alone to find meaning and connection to something. And I think, you know, your point is, 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 is on, is right on because I think when I tell myths to people or fairy tales or any of that kind of archetypal energy, they feel seen, they feel connected to the human journey. And it's like, wait a second, it's not just me that's out here kind of naked in the storm feeling all this. What do you mean? You mean all these, we've been telling stories about that. It's so soothing for people and validating validating they're not alone they're not atomized mm. something like there's a i read this statistic that this new generation like 75 percent feel alone they feel very lonely and mm. it's something to do with the culture the yeah. the internet the like social media social media and it's very unfortunate because they're not getting there's the water there that could part, you know, uh, yeah. irrigate their souls that they're not getting. They're not getting it from the social media. No, they're not. And it's so disconnecting and it's so, you know, it's one side of the being. I mean, this book is a wonderful antidote to that 
way of thinking because it's it's like the more you put yourself on the perfect and polished social media platform the more the reality of your being has to go under the cement that you're pouring to make yourself look you know right and then that part of yourself which is of course the deep and dark but don't forget it's also you it's also that powerful fullness in your being that has to start bursting out in other ways if it's going to get expression it comes out in our symptoms it comes out in our anxiety it doesn't get a relationship and i think people do feel super alone because they're disconnected from themselves they're disconnected. on a deep level deep yeah they're not getting into the unconscious the archetypal learnings uh we're at the 32 minute mark do you have time for a few questions absolutely uh, Oswald asks, what does Joanna think of Jung's statement that Westerners shouldn't do yoga? It's two mm. parts. And what does she think of modern Jungophobia? Mm. Well, I would want to know what he means by Jungophobia. Um, maybe, maybe he can hear that. He can follow up. Yeah, Oswald, yeah. what do you mean by Jungophobia? So, right yeah, what do you mean by Jungophobia? Um, you know. Jung's work on yoga is like such an interesting, he writes a volume on kind of this, um, the kind of psychology of East and West. And I think what Jung means by that <clears throat> is Jung doesn't believe the Western mind can get yoga. He doesn't think that that type of relationship is something that the Western mind is able to understand. And I think that's his his kind of, you know, and 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 who knows? You know, I'm 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 not a yogini, although I know some 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 pretty powerful practitioners who I'm sure would disagree with Young immensely. Um, I think what he means is that the psychology and the, the Eastern mind and the Western mind are so fundamentally different that unless there's some kind of shift in that, that the principles can't really be understood. That's the way that I've kind of been explained that concept to. And as far okay. as Jungophobia, fear of Jung, I don't know. Yeah. But, There's supposed to be, oh, anti accusations of anti-Semitism. Oh, so is that, that what they mean? <clears throat> sure. That's what he says, yeah. I don't, so, I don't know about that. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> the, 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 how do I go about talking about that? Um I would say two things. So the the kind of anti-Semitic associations with Jung come from him writing a piece called Wotan, which is about the kind of archetypal. Wotan is the Germanic god of kind of like, he's kind of a Dionysian figure, um, kind of a bestial energy of warfare, of power, um, kind of a forest energy, a natural force. And, and Jung wrote after World War II, a piece called Wotan on this, on this deity and making the argument that the German psyche had been kind of uh, possessed, I think is his language, by this archetype and had gotten into this really kind of like bestial, aggressive, power hungry energy. And people were really mad at that um, as kind of making excuses for the Germanic, he, he calls it like a collective possession. And I think there is some kind of emphasis made on like, you, you know, could you not have choice in that place? Then there's kind of this messy, um, relationship that he had with a fellow psychologist who was Jewish, um, who tried to leave Nazi Germany and Jung didn't harbor him, although he did pay for his like fare to leave, but didn't let him into his house. So there's some of this kind of like personal stuff. And I think that's kind of the base of some of those comments. Um, 
I would say in general, there's a there's a literary principle called death of the author. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but in um, it, it's kind of the idea of reading a piece of literature without the author's personhood behind it. I think that's as a modern person and as a young person, I think that's a really good attitude to take with Jung as a person. I mean, Jung was an incredible thinker and he was also a product of his time. He was enormously patriarchal. He was very wealthy because his wife had a bunch of money and he, you know, just used it to write books. And he um, he spoke his lexicon is really what we would consider now like pretty derogatory. Um, you know, when he talks about like ancient cultures or indigenous cultures, he calls them primitive cultures. And I think Jung is the product of being a affluent white male in Switzerland in his time. And I'm not saying that's an excuse, but his ideas are incredibly powerful and his ideas are so um, if you can get to the archetypalness in life, you can remove that cultural garbage that so oftentimes we overlay on to stuff. And so I think I've always adopted that perspective. You know, if you read Jung's biography, you're like, oh, God, <laughs> you know, he can kind of be like he can be a jerk. And I mean, he slept with a lot of his patients. Like you can find a lot of reasons. I mean, he created think, transference and transference and you're like, OK, well, clearly because you yeah. were a do it. <laughs> yeah, well, he. I think when it is the latter part of his life, he had two wives. I think he was a polygamist, yeah. if I remember or something like that. I mean, he was a weird dude. Like he really was. And he was incredibly he his psychology is so rich and has so much potential for meaning and person personhood and the cultivation of self and, you know, finding a live symbolism that can guide you. I mean, it's so powerful, but I've also all the way around to answer that question, you know, I've always kind of gone for that death of the author perspective. And I think any psychology is going to be influenced by its source. And, you know, I think part of the project of being a Jungian is understanding some of these ideas and taking it into kind of the world in your own way. Um, which we probably have to do with any founding thought as the times change and we change and our psychology changes and our expression of self changes, all of that. Right. Great answer. Uh, we are at the 40 minute mark, Joanna. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed? Uh, no. and where, somebody asked, where's the best place to get the book other than Amazon? Um, um, so, yeah. So Amazon, um, you can buy it um, directly from the publishing house is called Watkins. Um, they're also represented Watkins is kind of a British subset, subsidiary of Penguin House. So if you're in the UK or abroad in any way, um, Watkins is a great place to buy the book. Um, in the US, Penguin House is distributing it. Um, Amazon, I think it's on like Barnes and Noble and Target and all of those big things. Um, but I would say also the best, like your local bookstore, if they can't, you know, if they don't have it, they can order it. Um, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's that. And you have a Kindle version and a yes. paperback right now, right? Yes. So. Kindle and paperback. Um, I, yeah, I, I think as there's some, there's like a hiccup with the Kindle that says it's coming out in October that I'm trying to sort out. So if you do get the Kindle, it's going to be sorted. Yeah. And there's a lot of other information in this book. I highly recommend people check it yeah. out, but we didn't even get to the gods talk about Orpheus, Odysseus. There's a lot of information in this book. I think it's very worthwhile as an antidote to kind of this 
something uh the shallowness of american culture i would say in a very general way so i highly recommend this yeah. book and, and you know and i think i'd add to that it's like this book is hard to find on our shelves because it's not a self-help book it's not about how it's not me telling you how to get over, fix, solve, do better, look better in these places. It's a self-awareness book. It's about you turning your own capacity to understand yourself and your life on and root yourself in that. And I think for us at this time in our lives, in, in human history, we have to do that because we can, like the underworld, whether it's within or from without of, it's going to push past all of our barriers, all of our symptoms, all of our pills, all of that, because our world is changing and it's a scary time in a lot of ways. And so, you know, at the end of the day, like finding your way into yourself and your own capacity, I don't know, I guess I just feel like we don't have another choice. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's very important. Very, it's, it's uh, we're all actually on a heroic journey just being 100%. alive and so everybody can learn from these other heroes and these archetypes yeah. uh and again title of the book is forged in darkness the many paths of personal transformation author's name is dr joanna laprade and the book just came out may 10th and i'm going to put a link to her website and that's probably the best place to contact you is that correct yeah if you're interested in contacting me in any way um there's a form submission on my website so you know and i'll email you back personally it just kind of helps me um, keep my information in, in some kind of boundaried place. <laughs> awesome. Congratulations on the book. Yeah. Thank and you so thanks much. so much for your time. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, of course. All right, take care. Stay there. Stay there.